Welcome back, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. We're back for another interesting conversation with a Georgia music teacher today that I'm really looking forward to. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to encourage all of you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues who might be interested. And if you can take the time to leave a review, that apparently helps to boost the show and in turn helps others to find it. And now without further delay, let's get to today's conversation. We are joined by Cameron Furman. Hello, Cameron. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm delighted to meet you. Let's get started with our first question, which is tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So at this point in my career, which is still fairly early stage, I'm sort of half theorist and and half pianist. Um, And I think I came to music or the musical profession in a slightly unconventional way. Um, I loved playing the piano growing up. I loved it, but I wasn't that good. And I grew up in a quite rural area in Oregon, so I knew I wasn't really getting you know, the highest quality of training, and I was interested in a lot of things. So I was diligent in my practicing, but I didn't spend a ton of time on it. Um, So when it came time to go to college, I was really interested just in the liberal arts. Generally, I thought I might end up majoring in music, but again, I did not have really any background um, in competitions or in really intense study, anything like that. Um, So I went to school, I thought maybe I'd major in math, Maybe I'd do some piano stuff, um, and I ended up in theory classes and in piano lessons, and it turned out I just loved theory. Couldn't get enough of it, uh, which is largely to the credit of an extremely good theory professor I had, um, Omri Shimron, so I, you know, I understand that many people's theory experiences aren't that inspiring, but I'm very thankful mine were, um, not only because it taught me that I really love theory, but also through his theory classes, since that professor was primarily a pianist, he showed us how theory um, opened so many creative possibilities for what we could do um, when we're playing the pieces that we're analyzing, right? So our theory classes weren't like just assign Roman numerals, but let's look at how this music is constructed and think about how if you brought out this tendency tone or emphasize this cadence, it changes kind of the message you're conveying in performance. Um, So those theory classes, as I said, not only got me excited about theory, but made me just absolutely desperate to be able to play all the ideas I was coming up with in my head. Um, But, you know, again, not having a lot of background, I thought that was just something I was gonna have to live with. You know, I just would never have the fingers to actually do that. Uh, So I went on to a grad degree at Eastman in theory pedagogy, which I loved. It was so much fun. Uh, But that was the first time in my life I was really surrounded by top-notch players. Um, And it just ate me alive to be hearing all this good playing and to have in my head all these things, all these ideas I had, but I couldn't do them myself. Um, So I decided to throw caution to the wind and and see if I could... uh, get my way into a performance program somehow. Uh, And I practiced a lot and ended up in performance tracks. So I did a master's and DMA in piano. Um, 
but I never, I never uh, lost, I think, that initial fascination with how theory is put together and how much that can help us as performers, you know, an understanding of the quote-unquote academic side of music. So between really loving both and having some professional training in both, my career has ended up being pretty equally split between the theory side and the performance side and where I'm happiest, where the two combine. So I'm currently teaching theory at Georgia Southern and performing around. I have my own private studio and I'm working on many little side projects here and there. Yeah, I'm curious if we can backtrack to that initial theory professor that sparked that interest. One, I wonder if he sparked similar interest in other students that were taking his class or if you were just a super unique student and that your personalities clicked, or, or did he create like a generation, a class of theorists that came out of that? You know, I think it's some of both. I think I do have a personality that, that likes the analytical side of things, but I have to say his classes were extremely popular. Pretty much everyone loved theory at that school while he was there, which is saying something, because <laughs> that's, that's hard to do. Um, so I, I do think, yes, I have a natural proclivity maybe for theory, but he was and is exceptional at what he does. Yeah. And the second follow-up question that I have to that experience and your telling of it is, you know, we recognize that a lot of students don't have the same experience with theory. So for our teachers that are listening, theory teachers, what advice do you have for them so that they can spark the same kind of interest and passion in their students? It's a hard, it's a hard question. And I think especially at the college level, um, you know, in most programs, you're given a certain amount of credits and a certain amount of classes to allocate towards theory. And there's a lot of topics you want to cover and you're generally pressed for time and it takes time and it takes a lot of effort and a lot of planning to make the connection for students between theory and performance. So I understand the difficulty well being a theory teacher myself, but I think anything you can do to make theory not just a dry amusical exercise, but to actually get students to think about how what they're learning can impact the way they play. You know, have them bring in one of their own pieces, even in a fundamentals class, be like, okay, we're learning about you know, eighth notes today and how we beam eighth notes. Find some places in something you're playing where there's a change in rhythm to eighth notes. And then let's think about that. Why is the composer choosing to move to eighth notes here? What would happen if we kept it at a slower or faster rhythmic value? What does this tell you about the piece at this point? And then what does that tell you about how you might play it? You know, it doesn't have to be long, it doesn't have to be involved, it doesn't have to be complicated. And I don't think that as a theory professor, you have to be a great performer to do this. I think sometimes that can be a hindrance too, because certainly not all, but many theory professors aren't professional performers. You know, it's not really what they do. And I think um, it can cause them to be a little bit reticent about trying to make performance claims. But you don't have to make the performance claims, right? Your job, I think, as a theory teacher is just to direct your students towards what they can see that they can then make performance decisions about. Yeah, great. Thank you for that. Do you have a favorite memory of your piano teachers that you can share with us? 
I have lots of memories of piano teachers. Um, and I think for me in general, um, I don't have specific memories so much as kind of specific lessons I took from, from a lot of them. For my first teacher growing up, who I studied with all the way through high school, the main thing that sticks with me even now is that, you know, before every studio class, before every recital, before every, you know, tiny little local competition we would do, she would say, I understand this is stressful. I understand you want to do well, but remember, you're taking piano. We're all here listening to you because we love this music. You know, and that's why we're doing this. And if you enjoy the music and if the people listening to you enjoy your music, you will have succeeded. You may not win, but you will have done something meaningful. And I think that really shaped my own approach to, to the profession, because it can get really, really hard not to be swept up in the, if I'm not the best, there's no point. Um, in, well, when I was doing my theory master's degree, I was taking secondary piano lessons. And I had a teacher my first year, Daria Robotkina, she's at Texas State now, I think. But whenever I was working on a phrase or trying to get something shaped just right and it would work, she would tell me not to play it again or not to do it again, but she would say, live that again. And that made a really big impression on me because I had always kind of felt this tension between um, playing the piano as something you do and what it felt like to me playing the piano was like life <laughs> you know and her just just making that connection to me that a a phrase that is just carried and shaped just the right way it is it's it's it was your life for that 10 seconds or whatever so to think of it as living that experience again rather than just performing a set of actions again was was really helpful to me and i think the teacher I studied with for both of my grad degrees uh, was Natalia Antonova Eastman, and she taught me so, so many things. Uh, but one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently is how she really demonstrated to me that sometimes a lack of encouraging or conciliatory words can be the greatest form of encouragement. Um, I have never needed a ton of encouragement. I've always done really well with a lot of criticism. Uh, but we all need some encouragement now and then, you know, and I remember my first solo degree recital for my doctorate. I had been having a lot of health issues and I just had not physically been capable of putting in the practice time or the energy that I wanted to. And the recital went fine. I mean, I passed, there were no problems, but it just, I knew I could do better. And she knew I could do better. And it was just, it was clear that she was disappointed. And that was crazy rushing to me like to have disappointed her and to just have not lived up to expectations but even at the time and more and more as the years have passed since then I've realized that that was actually the biggest encouragement she could have given me you know to make it clear that I was capable of much more than that you know and and I think I tend to over encourage sometimes in my own teaching and her example has been really helpful to me. Not that you ever want to be harsh or mean with a student, but sometimes being very straight with them and just making it clear that this was fine, there was nothing terrible about it, but you can do better, can be the most stabilizing and grounding and encouraging thing you can do for them.
Yeah, that's really powerful. Thank you for sharing those stories and thank you for sharing those insights from your teachers. Who are some of your musical heroes and why? You know, I think most of my musical heroes draw from sort of that golden age of pianists, you know, active during about 1900 and 1950. Um, I particularly love Courtauld, but there are, there are so many, you know, there's Sony, there's Hoffman, there's Chernobyl, there's Bachhaus, Horowitz, Plachmann, the list can go on. But what I find so inspiring about them is that their playing is so individual. Um, but in nearly every case, when I listen to their music, even if I wouldn't personally play it that way, I find their interpretation compelling. It's interesting. I feel like it's rooted in the score. You know, I can watch the score and I can understand why they're doing what they're doing. Um, it hangs together, it's creative. And it just seems like this perfect blend of intellect meeting instinct or intellect informing instinct. And that I think is what I strive for a lot and often fail, <laughs> you know, to meet at nearly the level I would like. Um, I think in the music world currently, we tend to overemphasize feeling and instinct and underemphasize the intellect behind that. And it tends to lead to, in my opinion, performances that I don't believe. You know, they're very nice but I don't believe them. I'm not moved by them. I'm not convinced the performer knows why they're doing what they're doing. And it leaves me as an audience member sort of meh. Um, so me personally, I'm always striving to sort of find that, that reason for every, every performance decision I make and to not have a place in a score where I don't know what I want to do with it. And honestly, most of all of my other musical heroes, living or dead, sort of belong to that same philosophy of just a very, very considered uh, musicianship that I think is something I certainly can strive for and we all can strive for more. Yeah, as, as teachers, um, you know, the two of us talking and then others listening, I wonder if you have any insights in terms of how a teacher can foster that, um, that kind of... Um, individual voice, that thoughtfulness, that intellectual and emotional thoughtfulness in our students, because we are limited in our time and um, our, you know, our capacity to communicate with a student uh, if we only see them once a week or maybe at most twice a week. Yeah, yeah. I think a good rule of thumb that I found helpful anyway is to just always start with the score. You know, it can be really easy as a teacher to just be like, okay, you need to make a longer phrase here, or let's try taking some time there. But I try more and more as the years go by to always start with the score and be like, okay, what do we notice about this phrase? And start pointing out things like, how can we tell when it's done? Is it done here? Is it not? Okay, so given that it doesn't end until, you know, 20 bars later, how can we maintain it? What's going on in the music that can help us sort of keep the energy going or keep our melody line singing? Um, and it, it does take a little bit more time, but what I found is that when you help your students start to be able to look into the score themselves and notice things and understand the implications of the things they're noticing, then eventually your job as a teacher gets cut back. <laughs> you know, you, you make up for the time you're spending in lessons. 
um, many times over as the years go by because they start to be able to see these things and make these decisions and make these judgment calls themselves. Um, so, I mean, of course, the answer to your question could go on for hours and hours, but as a generalized little nugget, I would just say start with the score. You know, try not to tell your students something in the abstract, but show them where you're getting it from the score. And at what point do you start this process with a student? Do you start with the very first lesson, the very first beginner, or is there a, a level that they have to achieve before you can have that kind of conversation? I think you can start so early. You know, a lot of method books, the first piece is basically middle C with quarter notes and then half notes. And I think you can start there, really. You know, you can tell a student, think about if you're walking behind someone and they're walking in a pretty regular place, and then all of a sudden they start walking more slowly. You're going to bump into them. That's, that's a moment, right? That's something we notice. So in this piece, we need to be sure that when we have the half notes, we're making them full value, right? Because that's, that's the interesting thing. That's like when you bump into someone when you're walking behind them. You know, it doesn't need to be <laughs> inspired. It doesn't need to be elaborate, but just training students to notice what's going on in the music and the implications of that and how it should affect how they play, even if it's as, even if it's as simple as hold your half notes full value. Yeah, I think we've already started discussing on this next question, but how do you approach teaching? What is your teaching philosophy? Yes, I think we have started on that question. Um, you know, I've always been very intimidated by the question, what is my teaching philosophy? Because I just feel like it's such a huge nuanced thing. Um, and I feel so inadequate to actually have a profound teaching philosophy. Um, but I think back on my own experiences, both from my own learning and from my own teaching. And there are a couple things that for me, at least, have been really important. One of them, absolutely yes, is the ability to combine intellect and instinct. You know, not to go too far on one side or the other, because the magic happens when they're when they're joined, um, and we can, of course, always talk more about that. Um, another one for me is to understand what every student's individual goals are, and then to help them reach those goals with the highest quality they can. Um, I think, you know, you need to approach a student who is, say, retired and just taking piano for fun very differently than you would a high schooler who's thinking about doing this professionally. They have different sets of goals, and I think your teaching needs to reflect that. And that's hard. It's really hard, <laughs> I think anyway, to change your teaching style so drastically from one student to the next. But I, I, I think it's our duty to do that as best we can, and to understand that one set of goals is not more valuable than another. You know, I don't think that music is more valuable for the, for, well, when it's in the context of a high schooler who's trying to do it professionally, or a college student, you know, in a music degree, than it is for someone who's just doing it for fun and stress relief and just enjoying it. I think part of my teaching philosophy is also just to learn as much as I can from my students because they teach you so much. Um, you never know how much you don't know until you run into a problem that you've never encountered before. And you're like, oh, how do I put this? You know, what do I really think about this? Um, and I think it's a, it's a great opportunity to just embrace those questions 
and be honest with your students. You know, sometimes they're like, you know, I don't feel like I have a great answer for you this week. I can give you some ideas, but let me really dig into this and come back to you at your next lesson and let's talk about it and get their ideas too. I, I, I think it is false to say that we as teachers always have to have the answers right then. I think we can teach our students more sometimes by saying, oh, here are some initial thoughts, but I don't know, I'm gonna think about it. And then we'll talk about the process next time and you think about it too. So I, I whatever my students are, whatever their goals are, I do try to help them find their instinct, find their intellect and combine it. You know, students absolutely across the board enjoy what they're doing more if they're doing well at it. Doing well at it requires some discipline, <laughs> you know, some consistent practice time, some consistent effort, doing things you don't always feel like doing. So just motivating them enough, um, making lessons not only helpful and how to practice, but inspiring and making them want to practice, I think is, is key because as we all know, when students don't practice, then they're miserable at their lessons and then they're miserable practicing and then they want to quit. <laughs> So just finding ways to motivate, finding ways to inspire, finding ways to make the process as interesting and as independent as it can be. So they don't need me eventually. That's the goal. Perhaps you've already touched on this also, but I'm going to ask it just in case you want to elaborate further. What are your goals for your students and for yourself? These are all questions that, yes, we've touched on, but of course we can go into, into you know, more nuance and, and taking them in slightly different directions. I think we could get fairly uh, meta here if we wanted to. You know, what, what is the point of an art form to begin with? You know, and I'm not going to attempt to answer that. I think that people come, come to that with lots of different answers, but I, I do think ought to be more than just being really good at something. You know, it's, it's not an opportunity to show that you are skilled. Um, there's something about art that is, well, it, it taps into something innately related to what it means to be human. Um, and I think if you can, if you can, in your own career, in your students' lives, if you can help them find that in their experience of the music, you know, have a richer experience of life, have a new way of seeing life, have a new way of, of expressing emotion, but of understanding their own emotions. One of the huge things music has done for me is it really seems to have captured some of the things I was feeling and experiencing so much better than I could ever find the words for. Um, and it's been really helpful just in processing my own life, <laughs> you know, so, at whatever level they're at, you know, and it can mean, of course, different things to different people and take different forms. But if you can just take a minute and think about what the art form is for to begin with and how you can help your students and your listeners and whoever you're interacting with musically take advantage of or, or get them out of what, what the art form can do. I think that's yeah. the goal. I like that question, what the art form is for. I wonder if a reasonable follow-up question is, what is considered good art? <laughs> oh, that's an enormous question. Wow. I don't think that there is a single answer to that. Um, I think everyone's going to come to that question with certain priorities. 
and with certain definitions of what certain words mean, and you're going to get a lot of variation. For me, not having thought about this deeply for, for the past couple months, so talking a little bit off the top of my head here, I would probably say that some skill is involved. And that can be skill that comes from years and years of studying and, you know, slaving away. Absolutely. But I, I also think that some people have innate giftedness. That is a, a <laughs> it's an intrinsic skill, if you will, that I think can, can take the place. You know, people bring up Mozart and they're like, well, you know, he was so good when he was so young and he just didn't have time to have studied that much. And that's true. And I think he was surrounded by really good quality art and he, he was so gifted at just absorbing that and replicating it and being creative with it. I was going to say that I think it needs to be genuine, to have come from a genuine place, but I'm not actually sure that's true. You know, sometimes, sometimes <laughs> you can have composers who wrote something just because they needed the money and it can be incredibly fantastic art, you know? I love the question of what constitutes art to begin with. You know, going into the John Cage questions, you know, it can just sound be considered art. And there's lots of discussion and, and <laughs> fiery arguments to be had over that one. But from a purely experiential level, I think good art for me is something that causes me to think or feel in a new or helpful way. You know, there are some pieces of music I go back to because I know that I will find that particular something in them that's really helpful. Um, there's some art that I don't like very much, but I really find it interesting to interact with. You know, I'm like, why is it pushing all these buttons? <laughs> what is it that I'm reacting to so strongly? And that can be really helpful too. So I, I do not have a definition of good art for you, but for me, it probably would boil down to things that push me or help me in in some way and that can be very varied of course well thank you so much for going there with me i i enjoyed watching your process and you're working through that question and then finally arriving at your answer so thank you for that um can you tell me about your current musical or pedagog pedagogical projects that you are working on absolutely this is this is what makes me so excited um so it relates all of them relate largely to what we were talking about before, sort of finding how to make our intellect and our instinct combine. And what I've been noticing, the more I teach and the more I just sort of observe the musical world is that I, I do think we're missing out on a lot by how little we consider the score. Um, and I, first of all, by this do not mean that there is a single answer we will find if we just look at the score the right way. I do not mean that instinct isn't vitally important. <laughs> but I think sometimes as performers, we start with a need to be expressive. You know, how can I be more expressive here? Or how can I show my feeling here? Um, and I think that leads us down dangerous and sort of unconvincing roads in, in a final result. So what I've been experimenting with in a lot of different avenues and venues is what if we start by examining the score? Like, 
go on the path that the score lays out for us and bring our instinct and our feeling and all of that to the score. But if we start there with the musical language itself, then A, we'll probably come up with a more compelling final result because our ideas, our expressions will be rooted in something real rather than sort of in the womb of a moment. But also it provides so much fodder for creativity. You know, what I hear a lot is, I don't know what to do with this piece. I don't know, I don't know. Like I, my teacher told me to do something with it and I don't know what to do. And I understand that, but if you just learn to notice, just learn to notice things in a score, there's all of a sudden all of these opportunities for places where you can make decisions, where you can be creative. And I think one of the common misconceptions is that you have to be really good at theory or really good at music history or really good at knowledge of the rep in order for them to be useful to you. And that is blatantly untrue. So what I've been doing a lot of is um, coming up with either presentations or I'm working on YouTube series. I have a blog series I'm starting that just take simple concepts, simple quote unquote academic concepts, um, things that are related to reading the language of music and show how if you just apply even that one concept in a piece, it all of a sudden gives you all of these places where you have decisions to make and it helps lead you towards or away from certain decisions or shows you how if you play it this way versus that way, it you know kind of changes the, the quote unquote meaning of the passage or of the piece. So um, to give you a couple examples of, of things I've been working on, um, I've been writing a series for YouTube that takes the 24 Scriabin Opus 11 preludes. And I've been using concepts drawn from an average undergrad theory sequence, you know, ranging from like beaming of notes and time signatures through, you know, maybe some more advanced things like, like early hypermeter um, or, or some more crunchy chromatic harmonies involving texture, involving rhythm, you know, it doesn't have to be a harmonic thing necessarily, but just showing how these simple concepts that most undergrads will know, you know, if they just notice them in the piece, all of a sudden they can start to understand some ideas about what's going on in the piece. They can start to understand how different ways they can play it will end up with a different result. I am branching a little bit further afield from theory in a blog, a blog that is in very, very early stages here, but my idea is to take any concept or any, what's the word I'm looking for? Any discipline, I guess, in music and show how a little bit of knowledge, again, can directly impact your performance choices. And that can be, again, knowledge of the rep. It can be performance practice. It can be music history. It can be something not musical. It can be a particular author that really inspired a composer. It can be what was going on culturally or politically. And this is where, where the internet is a great thing because I have you know all these musician friends all over the world and I can get their input. I can get them to do installments. I, you know, I know this person knows a lot about Romanian language. So how does that impact, impact how they play you know, Romanian composers? This kind of a thing just to hopefully get more of an awareness of all of these tools we have outside of quote unquote just our feeling when it comes to playing a piece. You know, there's 
so much information out there. And I, I do firmly believe that we will have better interpretations. We will have much more interesting <laughs> and individual artistic voices in the world if we teach ourselves and our students to look at a score, to read the musical language, and to make decisions based on that, based on kind of how we feel. The danger, one of the dangers with basing things on sort of how we feel is that we're really, really swayed by what we've heard before, right? So we're going to start playing things a lot like what we've heard before, <laughs> rather than coming at it and just seeing the potential in language and, and putting our, our our best understanding of that language out there. And if we all put our best understanding of a piece out there, they're all gonna be different because we're all different, you know? So anyway, that, that ended up as a very windy, convoluted, soapboxy answer to your question. <laughs> but I get so excited about this. I, I feel like there's a lot of work to be done. And by no, no credit to myself, I sort of ended up on both the academic and performance sides of music, which I feel like gives me a, a great position to be able to sort of do some of these projects from. You know, one thought that I had while you're sharing this is I've been reading about Winston Churchill recently, and not only was he um, a government official and a prime minister, but he was also a painter. And what struck me was at one point he had a quote, and I'm going to butcher this and misquote him, but it's something to the effect of, you haven't really seen something until you've had to paint it. And it's this notion that, you know, you, you see, you think that you see with your eyes, but you don't know, you don't notice the details until you have to start reproducing it on paper. And then suddenly you notice shadings and proportions and things that you thought you saw, but it has just completely escaped your notice. And I've been, you know, ever since reading that line from him and then, you know, practicing over winter break. You know, it's this thought has come to my head. How many times have I played notes or a motive and I haven't noticed it because it's just been in the background? You know, my my brain has been so occupied with the obvious things, the things that are big, the things that are just like staring me in the face. But I'm not noticing the, the finer details that really make something powerful or, or makes a picture come together, you see. Yeah. Oh, that's a really good point. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Can you share with us how we can find your projects? I don't know if they're works in progress or if they've already been published, but how how can we find it either now or in the future? Yeah. So um, the Scriabin YouTube one is just about to go online, hopefully the next couple months here. Um, but all of this will basically be centered on my website, um, which is www.cameronforman.com. I will yeah. provide a link to it with the uh, with this episode. So thank you for that. Thank you. If you had a chance to redo your life and career choices, what would you change or not change about them? <laughs> I think about that quite a lot um, because there have been choices I have made that have made my life a lot more difficult. And sometimes it wasn't really even a choice consciously like growing up you know i did at one point think about trying to go to interlochen for high school and decided not to so that was sort of a choice uh, but i just didn't grow up with a technical background i didn't grow up listening to tons of recordings i didn't grow up with that and that has been something i've had to remediate you know it's i 
throughout grad school always had to spend more time practicing to get the notes down than my peers did because I didn't build that technique when I was young, because I didn't go to music school for my undergrad, you know. But, would you know, <laughs> I think it's always dangerous to say you would change something because you don't know exactly the ramifications that would have. But I don't know that I would have changed anything major. Knowing that I did end up as a pianist, yeah, I might have put more time into practicing earlier stages had I known that, but I think a, doing a lot of things other than music was really helpful for the career I ended up in. As I'm sure we all know, it's very rare these days as a musician to just do one thing. You know, how many of us actually just perform or only are a studio teacher or only play in orchestras? You know, there are lots and lots of things you have to do and lots and lots of different kinds of people you need to relate to and connect with. And one thing that's been really helpful for me is the fact that I did do so many things um, with so many different types of people. And yeah, that hurt my technique, but you know what? It's really opened up other doors. Um, even just in terms of creative programming, you know, I know way more than I ever thought I would about, you know, English authors from the 1800s. And you can make a lot of connections with music and a lot of things that are more accessible for a general public, sort of using that, tying things in with that. Um, but also, I think not coming from a typical musical background for, for someone who ended up as a performer, um, it gave me a fresh perspective, I think, on, on the profession and on what I was doing. I didn't come in to it knowing much at all about what the life was supposed to be or about how I was supposed to play. And of course there are downsides to that, but I think it really let me come into it for my own specific reasons, with my own specific goals. And that has been helpful. That has been helpful. I think another thing that it really taught me early on was that we all have things that we're just worse at than the people around us. And we're just gonna have to work harder and it's not gonna be fun. But are we willing to do that? You know, and, and I think as musicians, it's so important to know that when you look around at the people around you, yeah, there are gonna be things where you just have to put in more time and work harder. And if you want to be successful, that's what you're gonna have to do. <laughs> And it's fine, you know, you may not see the areas where other people are weak and where they're struggling, but they're there, they're there. Um, and it's, it's also, I think, an invaluable skill as a musician to know how to take something you're not naturally good at or you haven't learned yet and figure out how to do it and how to improve. Because as professionals, we get things thrown at us all the time. Can you sub for my music history class? Can you develop this program? Can you do that? You know, and it's, it's, very often things we haven't done before or that we haven't been specifically trained to do and the ability to take a problem something we're maybe not good at yet and figure out how to do it at least respectably well is i think crucial if you're really going to survive in this day and age um, as as a musician so you know i think there are small things i would have changed i would have practiced more i would have developed my technique more knowing now what i know but the big things that I think a lot of people would look at my background and say are my disadvantages have in their own way 
really shaped what my career is in a way I'm very happy with and have opened a lot of doors. So, you know, whatever, whatever your background is, I think you can work with it. <laughs> you know, you can, you can make it work for you in a lot of ways, um, especially once you realize that, yes, it's also going to come with its downside and you're going to have to remediate. And that's fine and true of all of us. This is going to seem like we're backtracking quite a bit, but I wanted to throw this question out there, which is because it, it is unusual for someone to want to be a theory major. Mm -hmm. And just if we have listeners out there who are like, that is exactly what I want to do, but I don't know a theorist. What is the path a student should take if they want to study theory at the graduate level? So the first thing I would say is just be sure that you are actively engaging with all of your theory classes in undergrad. If you're thinking you might want to go on to theory at the graduate level, you're probably pretty good at theory. And it might be tempting to sort of skim through some of the, the work in your classes because you don't need to actually engage with it that much in order to do well. But use this opportunity to learn to understand music and what theory has to do with musical construction as well as you can. Talk to your professors, all of your professors, about theory, about how it works, about how they use it, about what they study. Any people you know that have graduate theory degrees, but really any professional musicians you know, talk to them. What would they like to have studied in theory? What did they study in theory? Just get an idea of what's out there um, because it's a much, much broader world than I think just about any undergrad realizes. Um, and there are so many different directions you can go with it. On a very practical note, to apply to graduate theory programs, you're going to need some really good theory papers. So don't leave those to the last minute. You know, you, you might even be able to, depending on your program, you might be able to create an independent study with one of the theory professors at your school specifically to craft a really good paper. And that's worth it, I think. But and it depends on the theory program too, but most of the theory programs I know of, they're really looking for someone who can think creatively and with a fresh perspective about these things. They're not, I mean, yes, you should be able to put correct Roman numerals on something, but it's not so much about do you have all the right answers. It's about how do you think about this? What do you do with these tools? How do you Think about different ways of analyzing something. So encouraging those skills in yourself and just learning from as many people as you can, getting as many perspectives as you can, um, will I think be helpful. Great, thank you for that. Do you have any advice for young musical professionals and teachers as they embark on their careers and enter professional life? So I feel a little bit odd answering this question because I think I still count as a young professional embarking upon my, my musical life. Um, but, you know, as I was as I was considering this, it did occur to me that I have a lot of thoughts about what people can be doing at the undergrad stage to prepare which I think works because like it or not, I really do believe that once students are in a undergrad music program, their professional life has begun in the sense that the connections they make, the impressions they make, the things they learn are going to be so key to their professional lives. And, you know, I, I've been teaching undergrads in some capacity or other for probably about 15 years, almost 15 years. 
and you see them go on and, and do things and you sort of notice like where they end up and you know there are many lofty and wonderful pieces of advice out there but one of the things honestly i've noticed that is sort of mundane but the people who tend to do well are the undergrads who have acted professionally in their classes and in their coursework and that takes on a lot of different forms it can be checking your email every day and when a professor emails you responding promptly it can be when you set up a meeting you don't cancel that meeting unless you have a really good reason and if you have a really good reason you let people know in advance it can mean when you set up a regular rehearsal time that's a commitment you keep i mean i cannot tell you the people like it's silly it seems silly but it's quite consistent those who blow off their rehearsal times a lot people don't tend to want to work with them down the road when you know they're looking for a collaborator they don't want to work with someone who they can't count on to show up and it may not be fair oh i was just an undergrad then but that's maybe all they know of you you know so it really matters i think how you treat the people around you how you treat your coursework even those classes that you don't think you'll ever use you know your oral skills class or your class piano course you know because what you're showing people in those courses is, <laughs> well, many things, but one of the things is how you respond to a topic that you might not be good in or that you might not enjoy. Because again, as musicians, we're constantly presented in professional life with things that we're maybe not the best at or that we maybe don't enjoy. We have to know how to deal with that. And it, again, just, Thinking back on the undergrads I've taught, it's pretty consistent. When, you know, they're in their now lofty careers and are looking for someone to collaborate with, they tend to gravitate towards the people they know who were responsible and proactive in taking responsibility for themselves and their work, even just way back at the undergrad level. You know, if I have a project and I want to find someone to work on it with me, I am much more likely going to ask someone who maybe I didn't know as well, but who consistently was putting in the effort and figuring out how to improve, then I am to ask, you know, my best bud who we, you know, thought it was really fun to goof off together. <laughs> because I think I can count on the one and maybe not so much on the other. So for those of us who teach undergrads, for those of us who have high schoolers thinking about going into music programs, it's important actually to tell students these things. You know, it actually matters. Your email habits, it matters how you treat rehearsals. It matters that you figure out how to do things that you're not good at, because it really does have a greater impact, I think, on their future careers than people realize. And of course this is true in all stages of the profession. You know, I will lose students so fast if I'm not responding to emails well, if I'm not showing up when I'm supposed to. Um, but I don't think people always realize how early that starts. So have good professional habits. It makes a big difference. <laughs> this is our very last question. What advice would you give to young pre-collegiate musicians about a life with music? What I would probably start with, which might be a mistake, but what I would most naturally start with would be to tell them that a life in music is not all about inspiration. I think when we're young, and you know, things are coming to us fairly naturally. 
I anyway see a lot of people go into music programs and feel like it's about feeling inspired and it's about um, being good at what you do and it's about sort of the, the heightened spirit and of course the things are wonderful and important but just realize it involves an awful lot of sort of nose to the grindstone work and that work is worth it and pays off many many times now I say maybe I shouldn't start with that because that's sort of a, a negative way to start and <laughs> perhaps a more well a more realistic way to put it would be it's a wonderful life and it takes an awful lot of work to make it wonderful so just be prepared for that I think what I see with students is they struggle when they're not ready for it to be hard and those who are ready for it to be hard aren't so thrown by the difficulties and can overcome them and grow from them and I think we would all say that in not every case but many many cases those really tough things that we've had to work through in our careers have paid enormous benefits you know it's it's been it's been great but be ready to be flexible be ready to work hard and it's a good life if you're willing to you know stick with it through the unfun times because <laughs> they will come and that's fine well cameron this has been a delightful conversation thank you so much not just for your time but for your commitment to the profession for your um intellectual curiosity and for all the things that you are contributing to to our musical world and um, I really appreciate the honesty with which you spoke with in our conversation today um, it has been eye-opening it for me certainly and I hope for our listeners as well I wish you happy teaching and happy students <laughs>